0: Listener discretion advised. Some of these stories are a bit graphic. If you're below the age of 13, you probably don't want to listen to this. If you hear this one before the other two healthcare series, good luck because I didn't place this warning there. <laughs> be doing a third part of the series of my healthcare experiences. I want to talk about my time working in the emergency room, and then some of the settings and different aspects that you might come across as you're pursuing your health care career as a registered nurse. There are things like medical terminology, which you will pursue early on in your care- career. It helps in your path. I was once a unit clerk for a pediatric floor And that, learning that medical terminology, which includes a lot of Greek and Latin, it helped me as a stepping stone through a nurse's aide and then a unit clerk. They have prefixes, suffixes, and then main terminology, which you may have heard along these medical Healthcare podcasts. Through your studies, you'll likely do something similar to community health. That was in my bachelor's program. That project. Led me to do research on the motorcycle community and a lot of the myths associated around that community. And we debunked a lot of those myths. We would go out to rattlesnake roundups and barbecues and intermingle with the motorcycle community and learn a lot about that community and then ride it up and. We probably could have published that paper but we decided not to. A lot of that community nowadays is more on the wealthy side and they're probably older communities. Members in that community who can afford not only those expensive Harley-Davidson motorcycles but also the insurance associated around some of that. Another class that I took during my bachelor's degree was epidemiology, that is a branch of medicine which deals with incidences, distribution, and the possibility of controlling a particular disease. We studied things that are associated around a particular community, including African-Americans, which would include the sickle cell crisis and hypertension and things that are associated with that group of Population, and that's what epidemiology has a lot to do with. You will study things like the primary disease associated around a population and then try to find ways and historically approach what has taken place. And then find ways to vaccinate and cure the particular disease process. During my rotation in pediatric intensive care, I would do rotations in not only OBGYN, but the NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit in that neonatal intensive care unit you will have some severely deformed and premature as well as feeder growers and I remember particularly treating several cleft palate babies as well as babies born with organs on the outside of their body they're premature tiny little things about the size of two of your hands placed end to end and sometimes even smaller that was part of my float pool when i was working in PICU or pediatric intensive care Another item I remember briefly was in my emergency room rotation was was a part of the intensive care through pediatrics. You're used to working with neonates one day and then you may float to pediatrics the next day and then you may float to adult intensive care and then possibly even the emergency room, and on one particular day, actually two occasions, there were people that came in the emergency room after, or in some cases, during a rodeo. I remember treating one young man who came in with a closed head trauma, who actually either one got stepped on or got bucked into the head of a bull and he had a closed head trauma. He was basically incoherent. We intubated. Started IVs, large bore, 18-gauge IVs to get fluids going so that we can push neurotropic meticulously calculated medications according to his weight and oftentimes that's in kilograms which you all know here in the United States the metric system is a difficult process so you use his weight or the patient's weight if it's a female in pounds and then convert it to kilograms and then use the microgram or milligram or DRAM dosage to calculate the medication that should be delivered over a certain amount of time. It's gotta be done very quickly, obviously. Another incident was during a rodeo. While in the ER in the southern part of Texas, a gentleman comes in with an open tip fib fracture or he got stuck in between a gate and a fence post both of those i do remember their cohorts or buddies cowpokes coming in which was funny a couple of hours afterwards and even now today but those people that do the rodeo type and ranching type professions are (laughs) I don't know how to say it other than they just don't have very many feelings because I remember a small group maybe three or four coming in saying Is he going to be okay because we got to get back to the rodeo. We got to ride here in about 30 minutes. So seeing their friend or their family member who just had either a compound fracture or a closed head injury. Asking the question, is he going to be okay because we got to get back at it. It's kind of like a cowboy up moment. Get back on that horse and ride. And that's what we men have to do except we avoid it now. We know the dangers that are out there and we just avoid relationships and interacting with females on a large part. Another story that comes to mind as I check these off here trying to make sure that I don't repeat myself was my stint working in hospice. And those of you that don't know anything about hospice, hospice is essentially attempting to work with a patient and the family to where they have a terminal diagnosis. And it is bare minimal care. Oftentimes a physician will Stop the routine medications. If they're a diabetic, they will stop the routine medications on just about everything because they have made a decision that it's time to pass on. It's time to pass on to another life. And uh, one of the instances, I remember working with a lady that had a cancer diagnosis for quite some time and I I had gotten her as a patient she was about 5 foot 5 and under 90 pounds essentially wasting away and the only calories she was getting was from the sugary elixir mixed with morphine sulfate to control her pain I remember getting an order from a physician because she had a stage 3 decubus ulcer on her coccyx and it was not healing wounds will not heal without nutrition and the doctor basically ordered and I couldn't believe it at the time but after a little research it made sense She was getting no nutrition other than the sugary elixir from the medication she was taking. So it was getting worse and worse as I would attempt to pack the wound and debride it and attempt to heal it to allow her some sort of quality of life towards the end. The physician Called palliative care physician ordered me to pour and pack simple table sugar into the wound. I was like, What? This is crazy. Why would you? What is your rationale for doing something like that? And he basically explained to me that. If there's no nutrients into the wound, in order to get it to heal, you've got to have sugar and close it off to air. You've got to pack it and close it off to aerobes or aerobic infection potentials or it's going to get worse and continue to spread and or get an infection But yeah, basic table sugar was an order that was given to me one time while working in hospice. Flipping back to my time in emergency medicine and critical care, I remember one of my worst memories was a young girl coming in with multiple STDs. Typically when a woman comes in to an emergency room with that type condition, one of the first things they order is a pregnancy test. She was very young and she didn't want the baby. And a DNC was performed those of you that don't know what that is without going into technical terms it's an abortion so I sat there or stood there as a physician aborted parts of the fetus as it was sucked through the tubing seeing body parts it was the most horrific thing in my life and I can still visualize that memory and the sounds associated around with that which reminds me a lot of deep nasopharyngeal suctioning those people that are have chronic COPD or choking on their own saliva and mucus and dealing with kids while in PICU that have CF or cystic fibrosis and other chronic respiratory conditions. RSV is another bad one when you're doing suctioning, but that reminds me of the suctioning sound associated around that DNC with that one particular female. And the odd thing regarding around that is, I was I was a young guy, probably 27, 28 at the time, and she was probably 18 to 22, and she didn't want me in the room as a male nurse. The crazy part is, you had a male doctor doing that. So you talk about the double standards associated around that part of it. I also remember a number of times having work night shifts. There's a lot of homosexual nurses and nurses aides that work nights and I would have to essentially walk into the room and say, look, guys, I'm not like that. I'm straight. If you need something downstairs, if you're hurting or you're bleeding, I'm probably going to get a female aide or a nurse in here to manipulate, uh, check your fundus or check for, for vaginal tears or whatever it is. I, I'm not going to be that person. I basically walk into the room. If there's not a m- major foul vaginal stench or acute bleeding going on, I'm like, hey, you guys okay? All right, you need anything? I'm out. Or I got your medicines. Here's your medicines. Use the call bell system. If it's something associated around your privates, I'm going to get somebody else in here. And that helped me avoid a lot of circumstances. I remember along the same lines being dumbfounded at one particular point working in a long-term care facility. I had an old lady that basically sneezed her placenta, or her uterus, out her vagina, and I'm doing my initial assessment. Pull back the sheets, and there's this big purple thing sitting between her legs. I'm going, oh my God, what the fuck is that? I didn't know. I'd never seen a uterus on the outside of someone. It was a deep purple, and there was nothing but laughter at the nurses station after I went and reported that because I wasn't touching it. And they wanted me to push that thing up inside, back up inside her vagina. I said, Hell no, I'm not doing that. Y'all can do it if you want to, but it'll sit there for the next four hours until the shift change comes along otherwise. Well they did. They went in there and took care of it, but I wasn't touching it. It was that same woman uh, shift day or two before because you would do three on, two off, two on, three off. It was that same woman. Typically, you try to walk into the room, you close the door behind you because you want to preserve the privacy and dignity of the patient. If you're doing a, a bed bath or some type of wound treatment, I walk into the room, and this lady had Alzheimer's big time and some severe severe dementia, and she sees me, and she starts screaming at the top of her lungs, you want to fuck me in Tennessee? You want to fuck me in Tennessee? You want to, you know, multiple, multiple times in an old lady female voice. I learned my lesson very quickly, never to walk into a female's room with the door closed, ever again uh, one other incident a couple other here and then I'll, I'll close I remember having to memorize the 12 cranial nerves during my studies it may have been in A&P or in nursing school I don't remember now but once you learn a homophobe, I guess that I'm oh, not a homophobe, a homophobe, <laughs> which I am a homophobe, by the way, but you learn certain letters and then of, of the first name, first letter of, of the word, and then you... Memorize it and it helps you memorize. Let's say the 12 cranial nerves and I came up with my own an acronym for the 12 cr- cranial nerves and that's on old olympus towering tops a fin views greek values and heritage and that's the 12 cranial nerves Those of you that care you can fast forward this part, but it's basically the first olfactory nerve, the second optic, third oculomotor, fourth trochlear, fifth trigeminal, sixth abducens, seventh facial, eighth vestibular motor cochlear, ninth uh, glossopharyngeal, tenth vagus. 11th accessory and 12th hypoglossal. So, those that has to do with the name that I made up to help memorize that. Two different settings uh, one in pediatrics, I remember a story. A lot of these physicians have such horrible bedside manners and i remember a kid coming in who jumped off the top of the house and broke his femur those of you that don't know that's a top leg bone and it's very difficult to break but he put a pin well, the this particular physician was placing a pin inside of the fracture to hold the two right there at the bedside that wasn't in the or It was at the bedside, and the mother was screaming and raising hell, and I ended up having to get her out of the room because it was graphic. And she claimed that we were torturing her child, and uh, at first I thought kind of the same thing. I was like, fuck, what are we doing here? Well, the physician had to explain to me, that's where I learned that Most of the nerve endings on the bone stop after the the outside layer, the periosteum of the bone, and they really don't feel much after that. It's more the visual horrors associated around it. It's not really much pain at all. But you grab the leg, you see where the femur may be through the musculature and the soft tissue, and you find where the femur is and you you shoot with a trocar and a big needle, you find the bone, you hit the bone, you puncture through it's pretty graphic and another story revolving around a different setting that I was placed in, completely different setting, most of my career revolved around bedside nursing whether it be on the floor or critical care, but I worked on the other end of the nursing spectrum as a complex case manager for the male handlers benefit plan. That's where you as a nurse will sit at a computer and a telephone all day and try to help insured members through an insurance plan to try and save money for the company. You talk about seeing some major abuse on the medical system where a simple tummy syringe or something is so highly marked up to where you have to call the DME company and say, look, we know that that Tumi syringe does not cost the you're charging. Let's try to be reasonable here. A lot of times I would call and attempt to decrease bed days for people. Let's say you during the winter months you go into the hospital for pneumonia. We would have to call the case managers at the hospital to get clinical data to support them being in a current setting and why, if not, they are discharged and or still in the hospital. Clinical evidence of IV antibiotics or wound care or something of the sort had to be in place, and a lot of times, especially nowadays, that can be taken care of at home from a home health care agency, which saves the insurance a shit ton of money let's say someone goes in for a surgery and there are complications and they're in the critical care setting well there has to be evidence to support in which our computer screen would pop up and say Mm patient has to have this, the patient has to have that, the patient has to have, and physicians working for the insurance company would write those standards, and we would have to follow them, calling on the case managers at the hospital saying, I need clinical evidence that they should be still in a critical care setting with a bed Being charged out to the insurance company of, what, $3,500 a day. Not including the DME equipment or anything else. Whereas if they're just sitting there and they don't have an IV or something of clinical evidence supporting the need to be in ICU versus a step-down unit or even on a regular med surge floor, we ask that that patient be transferred if, the, if they don't, because they, the hospitals will bleed the insurance companies dry because of stupidity. Well, I guess that's the end part of this third installment of the healthcare series. Thank you for listening, and as always, no marriage, no cohabitation, no children, and MGTOW until your last breath.